is a continuing tension. I guess we could call it a continuous tension. Really, it's something that we have to both live with and resolve. And that might seem a little odd. How do we live with something we're going to resolve? Well, because I think it just keeps popping up again. And we want to talk about how to manage some of that and how to live through some of that today on Faith Is, where we help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And when we grow to that point, when we stretch to that reality, then we realize that life takes on a different perspective when we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm really glad you joined us again today. And we're going to take a walk through some interesting concepts and some challenging perspectives in the life of Daniel. And hopefully that will help us know how to live our lives in the challenging times that we find happening right here today, particularly in the United States of America. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago on the program, we talked about Romans, and we talked about the, the question of whether we are required by God to obey every command from a governmental authority or somebody who is in some level of authority. And we went through some of that, and we decided that, no, what God really expects from us is that we're to be good citizens. And we talked a little bit about what that meant and explained how we came to that conclusion based on our investigation of Romans and our examination of the scriptures as a whole. And one of the people that, that we recognized that had this challenge big time was Daniel because of his unique circumstances and his challenge of how would he get along in the Babylonian court? How would he navigate the ins and outs of what was expected of him? And how would he remain faithful to God? And there were times that Daniel and his friends had to stand up and say, no, we will not comply with that. We will not bow down to that. We will not stop, in the case of Daniel and his prayers, we will not stop praying. So we're going to take a look at Daniel a little bit, and, and the continuous tension that I'm referring to is the tension of our lives where we continually have to decide, are we going to follow God's way, or are we going to follow our way? You see, that's the, that's the big question, isn't it? And that's the big question that really affects guides, challenges our spiritual growth, is will we follow God's way, or we, will we insist that we know best, and we try to tell God, no, what you say isn't right, what I think is right, and this is what I want to do, and I expect you to go along with it. So you see, that, that's quite a tension. You know, are we going to dictate to God, or are we going to follow what God says to us? And at its heart, that is the challenge of temptation, or you might say the tension of temptation, because temptation comes along, and it's really our desire to do or to have or to be what we want to do or to have or to be versus what God says is best for us. And one of the reasons, and we need to remind ourselves that, that one of the reasons God calls certain things sin is because they're bad for us. 
He knows that we shouldn't do it. We should follow his way and turn aside from those temptations because they're bad for us. People forget that that God calls certain things sin because they're bad for people, and he doesn't want people harmed. So we have to challenge ourselves. We have to think through. We have to resolve and continue to wrestle with this idea of, will I insist on my way or will I follow God's way? Now, it's really a challenge, I think, especially for us in our individualistic society. We all think that we should have our personal freedom. And in the context of of understanding freedom of religion, freedom of speech, things like that, of course we should have. God is the author of the idea that people are to be free. That's not anything new to to followers of Jesus. That's not anything new to, to the church. So we need to wrestle with how does that work out in our own lives, because we are mightily tempted to assert our individualism because that's the, that's the context of the culture we live in, and it reinforces that desire to have our way. And so, so we come up with really odd things. For example, you may have heard someone say, well, this is my truth. Well, an individualistic culture affirms that you can have your truth. And I really don't like that expression, but it's a good illustration. You see, truth is truth. It's not my truth, your truth, his truth, her truth. There is some sense that we all need to come to agree on that there is truth, that which is real, right, true. And, And it doesn't do us any benefit to argue for our truth. But that's an example of what goes on in a culture like ours, is that we, as individuals, we think we need to assert our truth. Well, and and this idea of temptation goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's really what was going on there. You know, we like to talk about the forbidden fruit or the apple that they weren't supposed to eat. And we know that it's not an apple. We don't really know what the fruit was. But we do know this that the temptation for Adam and Eve was, did they want what they wanted, or did they have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and to say no, because God had told them to say no? See, that's the tension. That's the tension. Will we, will we trust God and his way, or will we insist that our way is best? And so we got to wrestle with that. We have to figure out how do we live our lives in the competing tensions, not only our own temptations where we're drawn away to go our own way, but we have to figure out how do we live in the context of where we might be expected or even forced to do something that violates our conscience. And so we want to try to understand what that really means from the life of Daniel and see if he can help us with that so we can unpack the story of Daniel in, in Daniel chapter one, that's, that's as far as we're going to get today. I think we can get all the way through that after a fashion. There's a lot, lot here, and, and it's very beneficial. And I want you to think of this as this is a story of, of Daniel and, and three of his friends. We'll meet them in the pages of first Daniel. It's the story of Israel and a tragic end of, of God's people dwelling in the land of promise that God had given them. And it's the beginning of how Daniel and his faithful friends, faithful to God, how they managed in the face of a pagan empire 
and having to do the bidding of a pagan king while remaining faithful to God. And so that has some application to us when we're living in our times, when we're being told we have to do certain things and we can't say no. How do we navigate that? How do we sort that out? Now, I'm going to talk about some things from the life of Daniel, from the book of Daniel. But keep in mind, one of the brilliant things that I think God has given us is he's given us stories of how his people manage their lives. And so as you read the story of Daniel, as you contemplate the story of Daniel, one of the great things is that God may give you an insight that applies to your life in a way that, that I don't even mention or that you hadn't even thought of before. But that's the power of stories. They help us think through these things on, on various levels, and they often end up applying to our lives in ways we never could have imagined. Now, if you come to conclusions, my biggest caution about that is make sure the conclusion you come to isn't because you want your way and not God's way. Make sure the conclusion you come to is clearly based upon the Bible and the text and the story that God has given us, because otherwise we tend to to fall into that ditch of saying, well, this is what I think God told me, and so this is what I'm doing. I don't care what anybody else thinks, or almost by extension, people will sometimes imply, if not say, I don't even care what the Bible says because God has told me this. That's where we get into trouble. So let's dive in, and really the question is coming down to this whole idea I mentioned, my way or God's way, and it's really a question of allegiance. To whom do we give allegiance? Do we give allegiance to God without question and without fail, or do we give allegiance to ourselves because we want our way, or do we give allegiance to another authority figure because we're afraid of what that authority figure might do to us if we don't comply? So you see, that's, that's a little bit of the layers of, of things we need to talk about here today, and we will. So let's take a look at Daniel. I, I really enjoy the book of Daniel, especially the first six chapters, because they are the story of, of Daniel and how he navigates his time in the royal court of Babylon. And, and I find it so very helpful to times like these and to our lives in general. So let's begin, let's understand the story, and let's, let's try to make some sense of it as God helps us understand how we can live in our times because of what Daniel shows us from his. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible, whatever translation you find most meaningful and helpful. I believe you'll find usefulness in doing that. You don't have to use the one that I use uh, to satisfy anybody. The important thing is use the one that you will benefit from, that you will read and understand and learn from so that God can speak to you from the pages of his word. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Well, in just a few sentences, we have an introduction to what's going on here and what will follow in the book of Daniel. We learn early on that King Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, and God gave Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar. He mentions that God gave the king of Judah 
Jehoiakim, representing the capital of Jerusalem that fell to the control of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar thought he was a powerful king, and by all reasonable understanding, he was. He had a vast empire, mighty army, came against Jerusalem. But I think it's absolutely vital, God thinks it's absolutely vital for us to understand that King Nebuchadnezzar did not win the battle of Jerusalem. It's very clear from the text that the Bible has for us in verse 2, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, him being Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this was the result of, of years and years of years of God and his prophets trying to warn the people, urge the people to be faithful to God and to not chase idols and other false gods. It was a continual up and down battle over many years, and God continually warned the people that they needed to be faithful to him. And ultimately, they rejected God, and God gave them up to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I think we need to really come to grips with that, that this was the result of the people failing to be faithful to God. It wasn't because God was mad at them. It wasn't because God wanted this for them. It was because they had repeatedly rejected God. And so God said, fine, see if you like Nebuchadnezzar and his way better. Now, that's a little bit of a, a plain spoken way to put it. Some of you will say, well, but they were still God's people. Of course they were. I get that. But over many, many years, they had repeatedly turned away from God, and they had wanted their way instead of God's way. They had given allegiance to other gods instead of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it says very clearly, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would have believed that he won that battle because he was a strong and mighty king, and he had the strongest army and more. We get a hint of that because in that same verse, when it talks about how the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar, it also says he gave him some of the vessels from the house of God. And Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, that, that just goes by real quick, but there's a lot more going on there than what we tend to realize at first. So, mentioning the fact that God gave, the Lord gave the king, King Jehoiakim, over to Nebuchadnezzar is significant, but the fact that he also says that he gave him some of the vessels from the house of God gives us a little more insight into what's going on. So in days, those days, in ancient times, when a king won a victory over an enemy, when he challenged a city and he was victorious, he believed that he was the stronger one in battle. And more than that, he believed, and the people tended to believe, now not so much Israel, but the pagan people believed that that was an indication that their God was stronger. So when Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and he wins the battle and he gets the temple treasures... He goes to the house of God and gets those treasures, those vessels from the treasury in the house of God and takes them back to Babylon. He is believing that he and his God are stronger than Israel and Israel's God. Now, what they typically would have done 
is they would have gone into the temple of a conquered people and taken the idol, the, the image, the God that was there, and taken that back to the temple in their capital city and put it in their temple, and they would have put it in a place that would have been subservient to their God, indicating that their God was the stronger, and now this God of the conquered people was now expected to give allegiance to their stronger God, to bow down, we might say, to their stronger God. Now, it's, it's largely conjecture. It's just kind of a visual picture that I, that I really enjoy, and I think it helps us make the point. Now, we know that the temple in Jerusalem had a place, a holy place set apart where God said to his people, this is where I will dwell among you. I will be in this holy place, sometimes referred to as the holy of holies, separated from all the people. Only the high priest could go in there and then only once a year. So God gives the city of Jerusalem over to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar goes in there and imagine, and I don't know if Nebuchadnezzar did this, okay, but this is this illustrates the point very well. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar enters the city and he goes to the temple, the magnificent temple, and he walks in looking for the idol that represents Israel's God. And he walks into the Holy of Holies, and what does he see? Nothing, because God had said, don't make an image. We often say a graven image. Don't fashion an image that looks like me because you can't contain me and I won't be contained, and that's not the way to think about me. So Nebuchadnezzar goes in, and he's bound to be puzzled. Where's the God that I should take back home? Where's the God that, that I should put in my temple that now demonstrates that, that I and my God are stronger than these people and their God? Well, he didn't see one because there wasn't one because Israel didn't make a graven image. They honored God's request. There were other implements of worship vessels and other kinds of gold things that they could have taken. We don't know if they took the Ark of the Covenant. I, I'm not aware that anybody is aware of whether they took the Ark of the Covenant or not, but they clearly took the valuable gold items that were used for worship from the temple, and they took them back to Babylon, because that's what it says in verse, verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, he would have been a little confused, undoubtedly, by the fact that there was no image to, to take, but, but let me remind you that this was a, a fairly normal practice for, for pagans to take their gods. You may remember that the Philistines at one point captured the Ark of the Covenant and put it in the temple of their god, and I don't know if you remember that story from earlier in the Old Testament, but, but they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. And lo and behold, the next morning, they found that their God had fallen face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Isn't that amazing? God was sending them a message. It happened twice. And so that's an idea of what I'm describing, that they really believed their God was stronger. And of course, with the Philistines, God made it clear that, nope, not so fast. Your God is not stronger. Your God will bow to me. And they had all kinds of trouble then because they had the Ark of the Covenant and ultimately returned it to Israel because they realized their possession of the Ark of the Covenant had brought on them terrible suffering, and they wanted to escape that, so they sent it back and said, okay, you can have it back. We don't want it anymore. Quite a fascinating, quite a fascinating uh, story about that. Well, Nebuchadnezzar takes his, his um, temple treasures back to his 
God's temple, puts them there. They become significant later in the story of Daniel when we get to the story of the handwriting on the wall. But up to this point, let's just make sure we understand that in the minds of King Nebuchadnezzar, all of his people, maybe even some of Israel, don't know that for sure. Certainly it was a predominant view across the, the pagan nations of, the, of that era and that time that his God was stronger and no one could resist because he had won. And so it's very significant to recognize and to keep that in mind as we look at other stories from the book of Daniel, because more than once, the people that Nebuchadnezzar took back to his capital city came up against Nebuchadnezzar's command and their refusal to follow his command because they were going to be faithful to God. And they recognized, and we see in the stories, that they were coming up against a power, a human power by, by no means, not necessarily a spiritual power, but a human power that could crush them and had crushed their capital city. Uh, it didn't happen on the first visit, but as a result of the capture of Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed. The magnificent temple that David had dreamed of building and Solomon finally built was torn down, destroyed. The beauty of Jerusalem was, was ransacked and savaged. So it was, a, it was a terrible, terrible event. And including they saw, included in that God's people saw the temple treasures carted off to a pagan temple. Now, it's a little difficult for us to know exactly how they felt. Certainly, they had hardened their hearts to God, so that may have had some impact on it. But from other places in the scriptures, we read how they, they bemoaned the loss, and they bemoaned the loss of their land, and that they had been taken into exile. And so it's a terrible, gloomy time for Israel. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a devastating thing to realize. I mean, Daniel and his friends were taken into captivity, and we know specifically about Daniel that he served in the royal Babylonian court, court for about 44 years from the moment they were captured and taken away. So he was there a long time. And, and I don't know if we know conclusively, but I don't believe that Daniel ever made it back to Jerusalem. So it's a terrible, terrible blow. And now the temple has been ransacked and the people are taken into captivity, taken into exile to a foreign land against their will, they have no choice. The king will crush them, has crushed them, is taking them away. We continue the story with verse three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, a young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So that's the next paragraph in chapter one. So let's begin a little bit of understanding of that. So part of what kings did was they took treasures from the conquered people, like the temple treasures that were taken to the Babylonian temple of Marduk, their, their god. 
but the king also took other spoils of war, including human resources, people. So he gave orders to Ashpenaz, and it's described in this English translation as his chief eunuch. Other translations don't use that description. He may have been a eunuch. He may not have been. We do know he was the guy in charge. And so yours may describe him a little differently. And that's a, that's a question that translators make. It's really describing what we know happened and what could very well have been true. We just don't know the exact nature of that. But the, this is the guy that's in charge, and he's told to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family, from the nobility. So these were, these were um, not just your run-of-the-mill people. These were people that, that they were to identify as having promise and could add value to the royal court in Babylon. Because now that the people were conquered, now that their God had been exposed as unable to protect them, so Nebuchadnezzar thought, they were taken away, and Nebuchadnezzar wanted to add them to his group of what we might call wise men. They were court advisors, counselors, um, astrologers, astronomers, a, a number of things. They were, they were the, the group of people that would read omens for the kings to, to uh, understand the future and to, to have insight into what was going on, what certain things meant. This was the, this was the group that these, these young men from Israel were taken into. They were from the royal family, from the nobility. They didn't have physical defects. It's a real interesting description. They were good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. See, the king knew he needed people to do the work for his kingdom, and so he expected them to do it, and they were taken back to do just that. Now, Ashpenaz was supposed to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. Now, what that means is that there was a body of information that they wanted them to know. We might think of it as a, as a collegiate course of study, perhaps. And, and, and it usually took place, I, I think the text mentions it down here, it usually took place for about three years. Yes, they were to be trained for three years. It says later on, verse 5. But there was this body of information that the king believed that his advisors needed to have, and then they could help him. Now, it was uncertain what they might do, what kind of counsel they might give. Perhaps they would, he would have some of them and appoint one of them to, to run a section of the government. There were various roles that they would play. And as the story of Daniel unfolds, we, we see that at work and we see them doing various things. We also have an idea, because we understand the roles of what took place in the Babylonian royal court, that the language and literature, as, as I like to call it, I think this English translation uses that phrase as well, to describe what they were to learn. We know that, yes, there was a language that they didn't know, Akkadian, maybe Sumerian, perhaps Aramaic, that they, were, that they needed to learn to understand what would happen in the royal court. So that language we understand. And when it says literature, it means a body of knowledge. And one of the key things to understand about that is, it didn't mean it was a body of knowledge that honored Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their God. And so they were likely expected to learn things that they would have found uncomfortable or perhaps offensive. But that's the assignment that they got. That's what was expected. They had no choice. Remember, they were captives taken into exile 
by a king that could crush them. And so here they are trying to navigate life in a whole different framework. No longer do they have the opportunity to be completely faithful to God in whatever way they wanted to. Now they were forced to learn the language and literature of a pagan court, including their pagan practices of things like astrology, divining dreams, understanding omens, all of those kinds of things. In fact, we know that Babylon had a whole library, a catalog system that helped them understand dreams. And so Daniel and his friends would have had to learn something about that because that was part of the course of training in the royal court. So you see, just from that little description, you understand that from the very beginning, not only did they have the horrors of being taken away from home, but they had the horrors of being exposed to materials, not necessarily language. We don't know that the language was offensive, but they were exposed to, to instruction that would have been offensive to their view of God and their understanding of what was right and what was wrong, what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. And so the tension right now is in place. Will they follow God's way or will they follow the king's way? Will they bow down because they face this pressure and this power that they can't resist? Or will they maintain their faithfulness to God? You see, for them, like for us, we have to come to grips with, are we going to trust God? Are we going to have faith that we've been defining as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? And they came up against that. Were they going to trust the trustworthiness of God and realize that some things matter more than the potential for being crushed. Well, we're going to explore that some more because that's the rest of Daniel chapter one. We're going to talk about what they did and why it matters. Maybe we'll get some ideas of what we need to do and why it matters. Stay with us. I'll be right back. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. There was a time when Americans could rely on the Fourth Estate. Well, in these challenging times, the media is both reckless and complicit. AmericaOutloud.com. Top analysis from leading experts, articles, podcast, video, and 24-7 talk radio. America Outloud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Faith 
Life Is, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. This is where we help each other develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God and challenge each other to stretch toward God's high calling. And I want to give a shout out before we get back to Daniel chapter one to my church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church, and thank the people there for this opportunity that we have to share every week. They are patient and allow me the time to do that. And I'm really glad that we can spend this time. We really, all of us here at our church, hope that this benefits you and helps you. We really want to help build strength into the people of God. And we're glad to be able to do this, even in this rather unique way. And, and I hope you enjoy listening to this on the radio on America Out Loud. But I also want to remind you that, that America Out Loud also puts these programs and really all of their programs on a podcast format. So if you have friends or maybe you would like to listen to it on a podcast player or, or through a podcast format, you look wherever you find your podcast, wherever you find your shows, you'll find Faith Is, and you can listen to it that way as well. And I hope you'll tell somebody about that. Maybe they'd be encouraged to do that. And while you're looking for that, look at some of the other programs on America Out Loud. There's a number of them in these days when everybody's concerned about the COVID virus, make sure you listen to the McCullough Report. You will benefit a great deal. It's hard to find truthful information. But I've been listening to Dr. Peter McCullough, and I believe you'll find great benefit from listening to him and help. He is a pretty straight shooter. He doesn't hold back, and he always has the goods when he makes a claim or an assertion or a recommendation. So check out the McCullough Report here on America Out Loud, or it's also available by podcast wherever you listen to your podcast shows. I think you'll benefit from it from a great deal. Well, we're looking at Daniel chapter one, and we've talked about how Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem. God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, how he took the, the sacred vessels from the house of God back to, to Babylon and put them in his idol temple, signifying that, that his God was stronger than the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We talked about how he ordered, which was a common practice, that, that some of the nobility, the best men, the brightest and the best, we might say, were to be taken into exile and trained in the royal court we might say indoctrinated into the Babylonian way of thinking. And I don't think that's too strong a word. He expected them to become Babylonian. They were conquered after all, and now they needed to give with the program and fit in with the Babylonian idea, understand the polytheistic nature of their gods and all that went with that. And so they're off on their way. We talked about how they, they even had different names, and we read that. Now, the names are interesting because it's just another evidence of how the whole intent of taking them into the royal court was to make them Babylonian and to take away their, uh, their identity as the people of God, men of God. In fact, the names that they were given had reference to the Babylonian God. And so it was a real effort on the part of the Babylonians to, to indoctrinate them and to require them to become Babylonian. And yet, something real interesting happened. They were to be not only taught the language and literature, but they were also to be given rations from the king's table. In verse 5, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. So they were given this, this food that, that the king commanded for them to have. They were to be trained for all of this so that they could understand. They were, had a three-year course of study. They had new names in an attempt to make them fully Babylonian and to indoctrinate them. And yet something happened. Don't know exactly when it happened. Seems like it happened early on in their time in the royal court of Babylon. 
But, but verse 6, something changes. I'm sorry, verse 8, something changes. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, what's really interesting here is in, in verse 8, it says, Daniel determined. Now, other English translations might say, and perhaps yours says, Daniel resolved. Daniel made up his mind. Daniel was not going to be defiled. Now, we don't understand exactly what this means. Daniel and his friends, the three other guys, they, they cooperated with the Babylonians on the language and literature. We see no evidence that they resisted learning that. But when it came to food, for some reason that we really don't know for sure why food was the issue, that was the issue that they said, no, not going to do it. And it's instructive for us for how are we going to stand up in times like this when we may have to come against people and say, no, because of my allegiance to God, I'm not going to do that. See, they, they were not indoctrinated. They, they apparently knew what God expected and, and where the, the line needed to be drawn. And, you know, it reminds me that, that you and I, we need to know the Bible. We need to know the Bible stories because we need to make sure we're aware of what God expects and what allegiance to God means in all kinds of challenging situations. We need to know the times we live in. Now, Daniel and his friends obviously knew what was going on with the Babylonians because they were living through that. They had to be able to sort that out. And then they had to know when to stand, and how. Now, sometimes we, who are followers of Jesus, we make a mistake that, that we just draw a line in the stand, and then we, then we stand. And, and the standing isn't wrong, but sometimes we don't know how to do that. And I think it's real important to, to make sure that, that we recognize how Daniel did it. He was careful, and he was respectful, and he said to the, to the man that was providing them the food and the, and the wine that they didn't want to have the king's diet. They wanted a different one. And when he resolved that he wasn't going to defile himself with the king's diet, it says that, uh, that he asked permission. He asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself, and God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. So there we see it again. God gave Jerusalem and Jerusalem's king to Nebuchadnezzar, and now God is giving Daniel kindness and compassion. He's giving him favor, we might say, with this man who's providing the food. So Daniel knew where to stand and, and how to stand. He didn't want to make a big fuss of it, didn't have to make a big public fuss of it, but he made a private fuss of it with the man who provided the diet, 
and said, no, we're not going to eat this. We want this. And, and God honored that resolve, that faithfulness, and gave them favor with the man who provided the diet. And he agreed to a test period where they could try the diet they preferred and see how they would. So, so Daniel wouldn't defile himself, said he wouldn't defile himself. And God honored that by touching the heart of the man who made the decision and allowed him to have the diet that he wanted that would help him remain faithful to God and not defile himself. You know, today, one of the things that occurs to me is that we need to think about not defiling ourselves with the lies that are being told everywhere and around us. We need to pay very close attention to the way we're being mislead, led, and, and when we're told things that just aren't. So we hear repeatedly, people will say that there's no critical race theory being taught in our public schools. And we know that without a doubt that it is being taught. The concepts are there. Parents see it. Lots of us see it. And we need to make sure we don't fall into the trap of believing the people who tell us it's not being there. We need to live by the truth. And that that idea holds over into a lot of areas because there's a lot of attempts to mislead and mis misinform us. And so we need to know the Bible and know the times and know when to stand and how to stand for that which is true and right and just and holy and good. And that's just one example of how we need to, to consider Daniel's approach, Daniel and his three buddies, and how they stood up for that. You see, we've gotten ourselves into this situation in some respects because God's people have withdrawn from public life and said, oh, I can't get involved. I can't even vote because that's messy. That's politics. That'll just mess me up. That'll defile me. And so we end up in this situation where we see it's a real battle between good and evil, the same as Daniel was encountering between good and evil in the Babylonian court. And we need to remind ourselves that as followers of Jesus, we are not defiled in that way. We are not defiled because we engage with the people around us. We're not defiled because politics is a messy business. And believe me, it is. Nobody should try to convince you otherwise. It is messy and we need good, faithful people of God to be involved in that. And the rest of us need to encourage and help and support them do that. But we don't need to fear it. We don't need to run away from it as though somehow that's going to sully us. You see, Jesus knew something about cleanliness and uncleanliness in his day. And the most unclean people of Jesus' day were leopards. They were required to tell people, I'm unclean, stay away from me because of the seriousness of the disease and how easily it would be to contract. But what did Jesus do when he encountered a leper? He walked up to him and he touched him. And guess what? Jesus was undefiled and the leper was made whole. And see, that's what we, the people of God, have to do in our days. We have to be faithful like Daniel stood up and said, no, I cannot, will not do this. And we need to trust God to be with us. Now, not everybody that has done that through history has the same experience as Daniel. Plenty of times people of God have stood up for that which is right and true and holy and just, and they've been crushed by these powers, but they recognized that allegiance to God mattered more, and they were going to be faithful no matter what. So that's, the, that's part of the lesson that Daniel is starting to teach us, is that you need to understand what's going on and figure out where and how to stand. We don't have to be offensive on purpose, but we do have to be resolute for that which is true and right and just. And that's what Daniel did. And so they, 
they passed the test. They, um, they actually looked better than the other guys, which is kind of remarkable. Wouldn't you say? Um, I mean, how do you figure that? Except that perhaps God was involved there and he knew something about what was going on. And, and in case you're wondering about the diet and that our vegetables really the best today, I don't know. Uh, we don't know what, what it was about the diet. Perhaps the diet was just the, the last straw. Perhaps he just saw that as a way that they could, they could stand for what they believed and who they were. Uh, we really don't know. Um, but we do know that Daniel resolved and he wouldn't be moved and God was with them and he helped them. And it turned out they were better than the other guys. They looked better. They were in better health. It was just the most remarkable thing. Now, you also have to understand that in the midst of all of this, the, the man that was serving them the food that was looking after their well-being, he was afraid to do this because he thought that he might be killed because if the king found out that he had disobeyed the king's orders, it could be the death penalty. And so even in the midst of all that, God gave them an ally, an unexpected ally, who agreed to support them and to see them through this very, very challenging situation. Well, let's see if we can finish this off now. Let's go finish the rest of chapter one, because chapter one really lays the groundwork for the rest of Daniel. And I don't think we're going to do all of Daniel. We're going to do a couple of things from Daniel over the next couple of weeks to help us understand how do we navigate our times. But it's important to understand some of these foundational things from Daniel chapter one, because most of us, all we think about is Daniel in the lion's den, and that's an important one. But this is very important to understand the, the basis upon which these, these faithful men served in a very challenging situation. So let's continue from verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. In that last sentence, that's where we get the idea that Daniel navigated the, the politics and the challenges, the political challenges, the religious challenges, the challenges of that which is right and that which is wrong, all this time from the time of King Nebuchadnezzar to the first year of King Cyrus, and Daniel was able to navigate the politics, the intensity of the royal court of Babylon. That, that's just remarkable. We got to thank God for, for a guy that could do that. that. That's really, really significant. So they go through their period of instruction. So a lot happens in the first chapter. A lot of time passes by and God gives these four men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. So be, they were faithful and we need to understand that God gave King Jehoiakim in Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar, God gave Daniel and these three men favor with the man who supervised them so that they could eat the diet they requested. And now, again, in verse 17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding, another kind of favor, so that they had special abilities in every kind of literature and wisdom. 
And Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. And that was important in some future stories in the, in the book of Daniel. So notice that God gave Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar, favor to Daniel and his friends, and wisdom and understanding of literature and language of the Babylonians. And Daniel had special understanding of visions and dreams of every kind. So notice how God is involved in what's going on here. And, and it gives us courage that God can help us when we face challenging times as well. So they, they go into the king, and this was the normal procedure in those days, and the king would have to give them their final exam, I guess you could say. So, so the, the guy who's been supervising their instruction presents them to the king, and the king talks to them and to determine if they had accomplished what he expected. And notice how it's described here. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, what's going on with the all of them? Well, when you look back and you look at the um, earlier parts of the book of Daniel, we discovered that it wasn't just Daniel and these three guys that was taken into captivity. It was a group of men that was taken into captivity, but specifically these four demonstrated faithfulness to God in a way that, that we see recorded here in Daniel chapter 1. And so their faithfulness resulted in God making them, in every matter of wisdom and understanding, better than anyone else. They were ten times better, it says, than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. So not only were they better than the other guys who had entered the course of study with them, but they excelled over all of the other advisors to the king. Now, that is truly remarkable. That is truly evidence that God was with them and that God was helping them. It's truly something to be, to be marveling at and to be aware of that God was helping them in this way. And so we need to take heart that God can help us too, that we can have the wisdom and understanding to navigate our times. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's not challenging. Oh, we all know that it is. Uh, but I do think we need to learn from Daniel that he resolved that he was not going to be defiled. There was a point at which Daniel said, no further, I will not go farther. This is it. And he stood up for that, which is right. He did it in a way that allowed him to, to navigate the politics of the royal court, to avoid the, the man who helped them, to avoid his death, and to actually turn out better than anyone else. It also reminds me that, it, that we live in our times where we're sometimes told the Bible doesn't matter, and the Bible is just an ancient book, and it, it, it can't be right because we understand things differently now. We've learned a lot. It's an ancient book. It goes back many years. But, but here, in all of the wisdom of the, of the Babylonian court, all the things they had discovered, all of the things they believed in, God helped Daniel and his friends excel at all of that and understand how to navigate through that because they turned out to be many times, 10 times better than all of the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. And, and so they would have had to sort out truth from error. They probably had to learn some things that, that they recognized weren't so because they trusted in God, but they were able to figure out how to remain faithful to God while learning these other things so that they could understand the context of their time in the royal court so they could navigate through it and come out ahead at the end. 
And to be sure, we understand that Daniel had opportunities to use this special gift from God for visions and dreams. We understand the others had special opportunity, but we also understand this, and this should not be missed, that when they turn out to be 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom, what do you think those other guys were feeling about Daniel and his friends? Can anybody spell jealousy? Well, we see that crop up as we go forward. So you see that the, the political gamesmanship that would be going on in the royal court should not be minimized. I mean, we see it happening in some of the stories as we go forward, but we should recognize it right from the beginning that in the midst of a challenging environment, in the midst of an environment that the too many church people have said, it's not for us. We're not getting involved. We don't, we don't want to do that. We're, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not going to mess ourselves up by, by participating in those conversations, by standing up for that, which is right. We're just going to trust God that if he wants it to happen a certain way, he will. Well, Daniel shows us that, no, he expects us to engage in the times that we live in, to determine when we cannot compromise, when we will not be defiled, and for all the other things, try to figure out how we can navigate our way through it so that we can be effective witnesses for God, that we can function effectively in the culture without fear of defilement and with every expectation that we can come out ahead because God is with us. And come out ahead doesn't mean that we survive. It means we come out ahead with our faithfulness intact, with our faithfulness preserved. You see, we have to, we have to think about this because there are things that are more important than our survival. Now, I say that based upon what the Bible says and based upon the encounters that, that these men had later in the book of Daniel. I say that based upon the, the witness, the testimony of martyrs down through the years who said, no, in spite of all of this, I'm going to be faithful to God, and they were. And so we today, we have it easy compared to some of those people in, in our country, because we have the opportunity to speak up for, for what we believe. And we have some semblance of the, of the rights that are guaranteed to us by the Constitution and that are, are our gifts from God. And we need to talk about that. What does it mean to be a, a Christian citizen? And when we can do that as we go forward on this. But from the beginning, we need to understand that we need to make sure that we are careful to understand what the Bible says and put it into practice in a similar fashion to what Daniel and his men did. You see, the church of Jesus Christ, you, the people of God, we can change things, but we have to maintain our moral authority. And what I mean by that is we have to maintain our faithfulness to God because the only moral authority we have is that which comes from God. And now what I mean by that is we have to stand for that which is right and oppose that which is wrong. And that's authority to determine and to discern right from wrong comes from the revelation of God in the scriptures. And that's why we need to follow the stories of Daniel and others to understand that, because I am convinced when the church stands on its moral authority, remains faithful to its God, then it can have a voice that can have a transformative effect on the culture around us. And I know there are a ton of lies out there in all kinds of ways. And people are confused in ways we never could have imagined. They're giving themselves over to evil in ways we never could have predicted. 
but we, the people of God, standing on the moral authority of the Bible, can say, thus saith the Lord. We can say, God has told us this is right and this is wrong. And we can give an account for why God has told us this. And we can tell the stories from the Bible of of how God has guided his people in the past and how we're going to be guided by their example and God's expectations of us. So back to the original question. It's one of allegiance. Are we going to have allegiance to God or are we going to do it our way to navigate so we keep ourselves out of trouble? We don't have to stand firm. Or are we going to trust God just like Daniel did and not give in and not give up? And I say we're going to have allegiance to God. We're going to trust him. We're going to have faith because that means we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So build your confidence, stretch your faith, be firm in your allegiance, and we'll talk again next week.